Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, I could almost guess, but how are things at the home front today? They haven't changed much. Um, <laughs> I think that's going to be a fairly consistent story, but um, not much has changed. How right. about yourself? Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it kind of feels like Groundhog Day. I was talking to one of my buddies in Denver who actually owns a frack company, uh, This, you know, talking to him this morning and, um, you know, he's been coming up with creative ways to stay busy and, and he, you know, being a, a owner of a company, he's, uh, he's, I mean, all day, every day, just constantly putting out fires. But uh, he says it's just been one big, you know, <laughs> fire to put out amongst many things. And uh, he actually thought it was Wednesday today. And so I had to look at my phone and say, well, actually, what day is it? So it's just, you know, it's funny. You wake up, you kind of do the same morning routine. You plop yourself by your home office or computer or whatever you got fired up. And yeah, you just kind of read the news. And, you know, if you just, if you're blessed to still have your job, you're doing the best you can do, uh, you know, hopefully a little bit more than what's expected. And, uh, yeah, it's just kind of like blending all in, but, uh, you know, we just got to stay focused and, you know, stay positive and, you know, we'll all get through this, but, uh, but again, you know, for all the listeners out there, we hope you and your families are doing well and appreciate all the support and, um, continued engagement, uh, you know, even through, you know, what we've been experiencing over the last few weeks, still pumping out episodes and, uh, you just want to thank everyone, you know, on the, in the background here at AES doing their job in part to help, uh, provide value for, for us to be able to, uh, put these episodes out there and Matt, uh, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, we're just getting through this and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but, uh, you know, again, thanks for technology and thanks that, uh, you know, you spent a little bit of time with me to talk about what I think we should talk about today is Afrons. What do you think? Oh my, Afrons uh, is such a good topic. Um, and by that, I mean, it just, it sort of seems to be something that never goes away. It sort of gets kicked around every few years. Mm -hmm. And so, um, this is one I'd be pretty happy to discuss i don't know maybe maybe people will have some some experience that would shed more light than i can but um <laughs> right i i would like to to say my piece at least or or share what i think is, is worth bringing up for discussion and then uh, maybe we'll hear back from some folks cuz they've been around a long time they come up periodically sort of out of the blue and then sort of fade away into the background again yeah no that's true actually the first time i heard of afrons was uh I had a mud engineer working uh, on uh, one of my accounts out in West Texas, and he had been involved with Afrons at one point in time. I don't know to what capacity, but he was familiar with it. And, um, you know, talking to him, it, it was almost like uh, Afrons solved all the world's problems and then some. And it's like anyone who's ever dealt with Afrons thinks it's the best thing since sliced bread. But, you know, evidently the market decided it hasn't quite been because I've never actually seen it or heard of it on a rig. Uh, so anyway, I'm sure there's value in it. Uh, you know, kind of like we talk about all the time. Uh, it's another tool in the toolbox. But I think, like you said, just kind of uh, maybe outlining, you know, what it is, uh, what kind of applications it could be used for, uh, maybe debunk some of the myths and just give the listeners a better understanding as to what it is and, and you know, maybe why you would or would not want to use it. So 
uh, with that being said, I think, you know, the best place to start is describing what it is and uh, how it works, Matt. So why don't you go ahead and give a good description of what Afrons actually are? So Afrons are a method to get a really low density mud, uh, basically by intentionally entraining air. We're not, it's not like foam. Um, it's a lot of, they, they call it typically like a, an encapsulated micro bubble or a, a shell uh, that, that traps the, the air um, to basically have these really stable bubbles that you can circulate through your fluid, you know, up to about 20% by volume um, and uh, lower the mud weight. And there, there are a lot of other claims that I, I can run through, but the, but the idea is that you could probably go up to about 20% by volume of air. Most of the lab data that's published goes up to about 15% as a standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, an interesting thing is this was originally proposed for water-based mud, and, and that's most of the case histories. Um, but there were also even attempts to do this with oil-based mud. Um, so, you know, this stuff was really big, or th- this stuff launched in the early 2000s. That's when all the papers are from. That's when kind of everybody seemed to be talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, was, it was sort of, I think, opened with a bunch of ex- excitement and was, was kind of launched as, as a big deal. Um, and then, as you sort of alluded to, it, it, it kind of deflated or, or lost momentum pretty quick. Um, but the whole concept was, if I'm in a loss-prone area... I can really lighten my mud weight, but I don't need to inject gas. I don't need special equipment. I could basically, in essence, like leave the hopper open or just, you know, allow air to entrain naturally and then circulate this gas laden mud uh, down hole. So uh, what's not to like, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. So um, you kind of described it, but but how does it work? I mean, you mentioned, you know, you've got aeration via... Um, like you, you've got a basically micro bubbles in there. Um, and so what happens and why is that favorable to, to different scenarios? Like what is it actually doing and how does that actually work in the wellbore? So, I mean, if you think about a gas cut fluid, what do we know that it's, it's going to have a lighter hydrostatic column, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if I can continually keep it gas laden at a fairly consistent rate, I have a lower equivalent mud weight. Uh, at these Bubbles are supposed to be very strong. There were lots of tests. There's a lot of information out there, and some of it is because the U.S. Department of Energy funded a lot of research on this. So you can go find these elaborate reports that uh, that discuss it um, to some detail and did some fairly interesting things. Um, but you know, the the big win or the argument is if I'm drilling, we, we've talked about air drilling, for example, or, or when you're you know injecting nitrogen or, or some kind of gas. Um, normally when you go to trip, you have to turn it, turn it off unless you, you know, have some extra equipment. Um, and the, uh, the other thing is, um, this extra equipment available here, I'm basically just using natural, you know, the rig equipment more or less, or maybe an air pump to entrain the gas. Um, and then these bubbles, it's, it's not like foam. Uh, you've basically got a fairly complex situation where, um, the bubbles don't really stick to each other. There's there's several surfactants. And so you've got like a, a gas center. Um, think about that being like the core of the earth. And then the mantle is like this, it's called a viscous water shell, but it, it normally uh, you have a very thick biopolymer um, that creates a layer there. Um, and then you have another surfactant boundary layer at the end of it. And it's the hydrophobe side, the side that, that doesn't like water faces out. 
And that sort of helps keep these bubbles from sticking to each other and merging and that sort of thing. So they can actually take a lot of pressure and keep their shape. Interesting. Do you know like how these are applied at the rig? I mean, if you have experience with it, like operationally, how you actually get those in there? So you can use an air pump, but in fact, most of it's just from surface effects. If it's, it's like you're intentionally foaming the system, but it's not foam. So you're basically allowing, like I said, for example, having your lines open, having your, uh, having your hopper open and letting air naturally get in. And any air that gets in is basically going to be in one of these micro bubbles. So, um, it has this very high aeration tendency because of the surfactants and the chemistry present. Um, so so that's sort of the trick. I gotcha. So there's a product in there that's basically in the base fluid. And then once air entrains it, or is it once there's air or oxygen or whatever comes in contact with it, it creates these micro bubbles. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no reaction with the air, but it's just that the air, you know, you can incorporate it. So think of, let's say you had a tank of just of water and in your mud pit Mm -hmm. and you threw a bunch of Dawn in there, like just dish soap. Yeah you know it's going to foam up like crazy just by the inherent nature of if I keep the hopper open and everything, there's going to be suds pouring all over the rig site, right? Yeah, yeah. So think about that, but in this case, we're making really stable micro bubbles and they stay dispersed in the brine phase. They don't all aglom- they don't stick to each other, which mm-hmm. is an important factor in how this works. Certainly. So they're not going to bubble up over the rig. They're just going to you know, kind of basically be dispersed in the system. Gotcha, gotcha. So what happens when it comes around back over the shakers? Do these pop or do they stay in the mud or do you know? So they're supposed to stay in the mud. They're spo- it's, it's possible to recirculate them. And there are even studies trying to show, okay, you know, as I pressure up, as it gets to bottom hole pressure and then reaches surface, like does that create enough forces that actually destabilize everything? And um, apparently not. Um, hmm. So you you do, you're not going to retain all of them. So you do have to keep adding products to keep it going. Um, but, uh, it's, it's something that you can maintain. Um, I think one of the tricks is that you don't know exactly how much chemical to add, you know, there's not like titrations to say, Oh, now I need to add more. Um, you just basically go by mud weight. Okay. That's what I was going to ask you is how you actually test for the concentrations of these bad boys, but it sounds like it'd be pretty tough. I, I mean, would you use a pressurized mud scale to, I mean, or is there any, yeah. I guess on a, on a rig, if you're going to apply this or use it, is there some spe- special equipment you would need from a mud testing perspective or? So there's, there's two things. One, you would definitely want a pressurized mud balance, um, to get consistent readings just because if you're aerating your fluid that much, um, trying to use a regular mud balance, you won't, you won't know exactly how much you have. So you want a, a fixed volume at, at that pressure. Um, and then, uh, the other thing is, um, one of the key factors in stabilizing the system is to have add polymers, give it a very high, low shear rate viscosity. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a a really high PV, um, but you're going to have a six or three RPM reading of, you know, it could be in the high twenties or low thirties Oh wow! and your low shear, I mean, your low shear rate viscosity could be typically they're. 150,000 to 200,000 centipoise. And if you look at like a typical polymer mud, it, it might have 20,000. Okay. So like 10 times the low shear rate viscosity, it's, it's substantial. 
So, okay. Well, talking about properties, um, I glanced through some material earlier, and if my memory serves me correctly, uh, these Afrons under ambient conditions can range in the size from 15 to 100 microns. Um, does it af- play effect on like our solids? Like when we burn retorts, will it want to show a higher solids or does it not do that? Or can you, can you touch on that part of it? You, you basically have to change your retort procedure, uh, knowing that when you burn the retort, there's air in there, right? Yeah. So um, you're, you're more dependent on what we call a gravimetric procedure, which takes the weight of everything. So, you know, on the rig, we, we normally go strictly by volume, right? We, we have our mud weight. We know we put it in a 20 or 50 mil retort cell. We burn it off. We know the volume that, you know, condensed in the J-tube. Um, here in the lab, for example, we want to know if there's something wrong with the equipment. So we see what evaporates. So we weigh everything. Um, and we can see if some weight disappeared that we're having evaporation or something else is going on. So you would weigh actually, you, you know, you would need a precision balance, basically weigh the, you know, weigh the cell before and after and figure out, you know, basically doing the math, how much of it went away as air. Um, so it's, it's a slight modification. It's not crazy, but a conventional retort is going to definitely throw you off. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. No, I'm actually looking at uh, some properties from an AEDE paper from way back when, and and that makes sense. I, you know, the six and three are through the roof, like above 30. And um, yeah, yield point's real high. So uh, kind of supplementing what you're saying there. Yeah, I can see here. That makes sense. Um, if people are interested on on that paper, do you, do you know, is that some, something that's still accessible on the AED website or? Yeah, if you go to AED.org and um, there's a section under technical papers, um, and they're broken down by conference and year. So what year is that that paper? I think it's... Looking at it, it says uh, 2004. So go to the one that would that was the uh, 2004. I believe that would be a fluids conference because it's an even-numbered year. Um, and you can get download that for free and read it. Ah, excellent. Perfect. Well, uh, yeah, that'll be a resource out there for anyone that's interested more on the technical paper side of things but uh going back so okay that clears that up on the the property side of things matt why don't we get uh, a little bit more with uh, or discuss a little bit more on the, the uses and and maybe some of the claims that this system presents uh going back to the first one what what is the ideal uh area or type of well uh and, and when would you want to actually use this type of system so the you know the big claim or the or the big promise that the this fluid held was the idea that I could lower in a loss prone area, I could lower my mud weight, um, without having to, um, without having to have any of that equipment to nitrify a a lot of times that equipment is so expensive, it's out of the question. And here it's basically, I add a surfactant and some other products and I can get the same effect was, was sort of the argument. Mm. Um, and not only that, but, um, that that the fluid properties inherently would assist with loss prone and and loss prone areas and so those bubbles one of the claims was they have such a strong surface tension that uh once you get them through a bit they they get a bit smaller but they're they've got they're strong enough that they could actually act as a solid as a as a bridging material mm. in the same way you might think about oil based mud and the brine phase actually acting as a solid because it's that membrane and it's got a surface tension to it um, that these gas bubbles could do the same thing. Um, but the other thing, and I think what was actually going on is 
when you have a low shear rate viscosity that insanely high, if you go into an invasion zone, um, think about think about a just the radial effect of that fluid as it invades. So, um, you know, you may have a certain pressure over a certain area, but that area gets bigger and bigger the further that fluid invades, right? So it takes less and less pressure. Uh, um, it, it, it's less and less equivalent pressure that that fluid's capable of resisting as you're further and further out from the flow area. And so in the same way that you might pump a really thick fluid loss control pill, and in completions, we would do this pretty common. We, there'd be no solids. We just have a very thick polymer fluid um, and you pump it down there and it would slow the leak off rate. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the inherently high low shear rate viscosity was a huge contributor in some of these applications uh, to, you know, to, to actually minimizing those losses. although. You know, there is data out there suggesting that these bubbles do act as bridging agents and so on and so forth. And um, I think I think there's a bit of skepticism as to how true that is, but I think it would be difficult to make the claim that it's totally false. Gotcha. So, um, yeah, so I, I would say that, that, is, that is, you know, application number one or the most primary use that you would think of for an Afron system. I got you. So with that being said, some of the things that you're highlighting to me make it somewhat favorable for uh, a drilling fluid or a, like a reservoir drilling fluid. Is that fair to assume? So uh, that was another big area where it was promoted. And if you think about it, if you could drill at very low overbalance and depleted reservoir, um, you might be able to minimize formation damage. The other thing is because most of this is surfactants and um polymer that um it was it was more or less a solids free system that uh you know could minimize damage that way um and and there was some some decent data suggesting as much there's some published return permeability testing and some other things um and a lot of the questions that i'd read from the technical community were if those surfactants would interact with the uh with crude oil and create some emulsions and they were able to pretty comfortably show that wasn't the case. I think my only question, if, if you go to a bar after, during the formation damage conference and you want to have people argue about biopolymer damage in sandstone, um, you will have the time of your life being entertained at people arguing over, over something that is so seemingly trivial and mundane. Um, <laughs> right. But, but that being said, uh, there's there's fairly uh, solids-free fluids. One, you are going to incorporate drilled solids. But the other thing is, especially biopolymers like xanthan gum and and some of these other uh, branch polymers um, like diutan, some some of the other ones you might encounter. Uh, the invasion issue is that that polymer may not invade very far, but it's got so many points where it can touch things and adhere to them that it doesn't necessarily want to flow back as readily either. Um, you know, the argument from a damage mitigation perspective was I can basically break these gas bubbles and there's, you know, there's nothing between me and my hydrocarbons. Um, well, you know, in the Mythbusters argument, I'll say it's plausible, but, um, it's, it's just fairly difficult to substantiate that with that much polymer and cellulosic additives that you're not going to incur something. Um, so that was, that's really the other the other area i would say gotcha 
something that wasn't hasn't been mentioned yet, but kind of popped into my head it was corrosion. Is that something that poses an issue with this type of fluid, and and how do we mitigate it? Is it similar to regular uh, drilling fluids, or what does that look like? That's actually a really good question because it's well, and and I don't know. I've, I have part of an answer for you because I don't. I, I have questions myself, but um, so there were some studies done, and and the argument was that. Well, and, and it was it was fairly well demonstrated that these bubbles are totally encapsulated. And because of that, you're not having air being able to, you know, interact with the metal and, and create, you know, high oxygen-rich fluids. Um, hmm. The other thing that was noted was that when you mix these, when you mix this stuff with air, the, the cellulosic additives actually react with oxygen pretty quick. And so it was mostly nitrogen in the bubble, even though you're using, you know, atmospheric air to, to prepare it. So, um, that's the part that I was able to read some pretty good studies on. The part I can't answer though, is let's say I want to add a corrosion inhibitor. A lot of them are surfactant based. A lot of them may compete for, uh, some of the surfactants that are used. So I think that could be a pretty high risk area of like, if you wanted to use this, I would really check if I was trying to use a filming material or something like that. It, it might go to war with your, uh, your surfactants that stabilize these gas bubbles. Mm. Um, and so that could be real bad news if you haven't checked that out in advance. Makes sense. So a lot of, you know, make sure the planning stages are done properly. And I mean, being, you know, I think like any fluid is just being aware of its limitations or, or maybe not limitations from this, you know, on that, but at least understanding what's going on from a chemistry perspective and making sure you've, you've covered all angles. Um, Matt, with regards to, so, I mean, you've answered that question, um, you know, with great detail. Now, my, my question is always, you know, what, what are some of the issues? Cause I mean, it sounds like it's, it's favorable, you know, it's, it's got some decent application, but there's always, I don't want to say a downside, but there's always, you know, you always want to see what the advantages are versus the disadvantages or some of the issues that may be posed to that. So can you touch on some of the, the issues that you could see coming up when using this type of fluid? Well, the consistent feedback that I got from people who did run it um, on the technical side was that the bubbles never really held up to high overbalance pressure. Um, and there were some studies showing, hey, this, this, these bubbles stay stable at two or 3,000 PSI. Um, other studies were showing it's more like a thousand PSI. Hmm. Um, and so in light of that, if, you know, if you're comparing your formation pressures and that sort of thing, uh, there's probably a lot of scenarios where, um, it may work at balance or, or slightly overbalanced. Um, but then there's this whole other regime where those bubbles just aren't going to hold up like, you know, like originally advertised. Um, and so I, I think that, uh, that was probably what, you know, swept the rug out from under, you know, this fluid. Cause this was, I mean, this was kind of supposedly, you know, looked like the next big thing as far as fluid technology for a little while. Um, and, uh, it, it not only kind of took off quickly, but it disappeared quickly. Um, but that being said, there were some successful case histories in California and in uh, South America, um, you know, and, and so I, I think that was the first thing is just basic system reliability. Um, but the other thing that I got feedback from from several folks was, you know, there are a lot of products uh, on a maintenance perspective. There's, 
there, there's quite a lot of things to pay attention to and supplemental additives for more extreme environments. And so you could be trying to maintain concentrations of six or eight products and very few of them you can even measure other than by mud weight and rheology. And so, um, another thing that seems to have been an observation was when the fluid was new and there were, you know, technical specialists out there and everybody was on their game to make sure that everything was run Cadillac, um, things went okay. When it was kind of handed over to local operations, uh, is when very quickly they had these crashes and burns. And, um, you know, I, I think people just said, yeah, we're not doing this anymore. Um, so I think, I think that was a big thing. I think, uh, you know, it's even, you know, maintaining the surfactant and that sort of thing, you can monitor the mud weight, but fine drilled solids, bay right. If you, if you end up waiting up or anything like that, those are, those are all going to come into play, um, as far as consuming the product and how much additive do you add? And, um, so there's just a lot to think about on the maintenance side. Although I think like you said, some of the, I, I know a few people who've run it and said, Hey, yeah, it worked pretty well. Um, so, uh, I think it just, it just requires a good mud engineer, someone who's, who's paying attention to details to, to kind of keep that going. I gotcha. So economically, it sounds to me like it's, there's certainly a, an elevated cost associated with running something like this. And hopefully, you know, the, the return on the investment's worth it, but, uh, that would, that would be something that I think a lot of folks, especially nowadays in the environment that we're in or, you know, everything was cost conscious. So certainly that uh would pose uh you know some some questions you know at least from my perspective um what about uh like is it like contamination wise i mean is there anything that kind of breaks the system down or you know if you were to take say gas or oil or water influx i mean does that affect it can you touch on some of those yeah um so i think uh so one one thing that i saw was noted was um if you have to flow back through a choke, you're going to make a ton of gas-laden afrons, um, which could be a very undesirable thing. Um, but it kind of makes sense if, you know, the gas phase is going to go into the gas bubble. And um, so that, uh, you know, there's there's some things I've seen where, you know, hey, you need to divert that stuff and isolate it and kind of let those bubbles break down. And, you know, then you can reuse it. But uh that seemed like a, a, a touchy one. Um, on the oil side of things, what was interesting is I saw, I've seen both claims that it doesn't tolerate oil very well, and then I've seen elaborate studies claiming that it does. Um, the problem is so much of this stuff, and, and quite honestly, like even though this system, I would argue, failed or never, never took off for plenty of good reasons, the the deployment all of the background testing and everything since it's kind of out in the open and published is a pretty good case study in how to deploy new technology um is you know they did kind of do everything they could up front to do the testing and and it goes back to that you never know till you put it on a rig either um yep. in different environments but uh there there were tests showing you know yeah it's quite tolerant of crude oil and then others that were saying yeah, i don't know if i'd do this um so I, I think there it's kind of a a punt. I lean to I lean towards it maybe being more tolerable than originally thought, uh, just by way of its hydrophobic bubbles. And so I don't think the the uh, it it probably can tolerate the oil and and uh, um, 
kind of just incorporated into the system if if you take an influx although what are you doing taking hydrocarbon influxes <laughs> so let's just not do that yeah um so i would say i would say from a contaminant perspective that's uh you know and the other thing is uh the stuff just doesn't tolerate low ph very well so acid gases and everything you got to make sure you're buffered um and then the flip side of that is uh you got to be very careful on the high end of the ph side of things because you know it's it's gonna it's got biopolymers in it. it's gonna tear those up if you start th- even in caustic and try and take the ph above you know ten and a half um it's gonna break all that stuff down and it's very very dependent on that high low shear rate viscosity interesting so if one was to be running something like this what would do you, do you have an idea of where you'd want to keep that ph at because it seems like that's pretty important i mean i i didn't see anything myself but do you happen to know off the top of your head what ideal is I mean, I, I think just like a typical polymer mud, you know, nine, ten and a half. I think I think the problem is though, you know, you encounter some H2S or something, and um if you don't have enough scavenger and, and that sort of thing, um, you know, it's not like brine where we can just heave in caustic or or you know, heave in a bunch of, of material and keep the pH up at eleven and, and kind of get by. And you know, we've done that with our direct emulsion system where, you know, we encountered H2S, ran the pH up to eleven, um, and it's not dependent on biopolymers to stay together so it you know it does okay the problem is that this is wholly dependent on on those polymers so in an h2s zone or something like that you you're basically dependent upon scavenging or you're going to break the fluid down interesting huh yeah definitely lots to consider um man those are really i can't really think of anything else that i that i'd like to touch on or, or ask about um i guess the final question i have is to kind of wrap this up if 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 one was to run this system being that there's not too too much information out there what what would, would, would you say the top three uh things would be to consider or or i mean maybe just something major i mean can, can you kind of sum it up and say if you're going to run this really be mindful of of x is there something you could put out there i i mean i guess my main issue is when i encounter folks who who ask about it they seem to be very driven by, I'm looking for a miracle solution to address all my problems. And I heard about this. Um, the fact is, I think there's a reason this stuff, people got very excited about it and that it disappeared. Um, so now when you see it, basically, I think that there are still some active patents on this stuff that sort of get passed around. Um, but it's typically by, it's not by mud companies, it's by suppliers who want to sell the products. Mm. Um, I think it may work okay in some circumstances. Like I, I think I saw somebody recommending it maybe for a workover a while ago, which I think is, is probably not a bad spot just because it's a very controlled, you know, you're mostly encasing. It's a very controlled environment. Um, okay. I think, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to balance out all of the cost and like any new technology, the commitment and, and you know, all of those things and see it through and see if it's going to work. Um, but you know, everybody was talking about this and then they stopped and you don't see any really recent publications. And if you do, they're from remote areas and they're not very well documented. Um, and then historically you move forward and this is when everybody wanted, then wanted to do glass beads where instead of using a surfactant to entrap gas, I I'm using hollow beads that have air in them to lighten up my mud weight. Um, 
and then people realized those were kind of expensive and, and, you know, created some other issues. Um, and you just see those things kick up every once in a while. And so not to say that you couldn't use this system. I, I, there are documented case histories of it working effectively. Um, but when it was used effectively, it had a pretty niche application. Um, and even in some of those areas where it was used, it was there and now it's gone. Uh, which means that somebody said, you know what, I'm fine with losing circulation again, or, you know, or I've come up with a better alternative. Let me treat the losses instead of, um, trying to do this. So, um, I don't know. I, I think this is just more so one of those, I, I want people to understand, you know, what it is because it, it sounds very interesting, but I also think folks need to understand that, um, they should approach it with a healthy amount of skepticism. Um, not to say that it won't work for their application. I think you already mentioned these are all tools in the toolbox. They're worthwhile to be aware of. Um, but also realize that, you know, if, if there was a silver bullet, um, why did we pick it up 20 years ago and, and then put it down? So anyways, I'd say that's, those would be my parting words. Yeah, no. And, and with that being said, if anyone else out there has got any experience with it and they'd like to shine some light on some of the topics that we've discussed, uh, certainly do so. You can hit us up at the Flowline podcast at aesfluids.com or hit up, uh, uh, hit us up on LinkedIn. Matt and I are both on there quite regularly. Uh, feel free to send us a note or question or comment. Uh, we always welcome the engagement. And as always, we appreciate the support from anybody, uh, everybody out there. Matt, that's about it for me today. You got any uh, other closing last words, any words of encouragement, any hope, any anything that you can uh, put a silver lining around? Well, I want to say that, um, you know, what time would be better than right now to look around and be thankful for what you've got and thankful for your family um, and perhaps even, you know, the extra time you get to spend with them. Yes. Um, it's a very unique moment in our lives and in history where we have no choice but to, you know, take a step back from the busyness of our day um, and be around people and, and find a way to enjoy time with one another. So um, that is an opportunity. And I hope that we all, including myself, make the most of it. I couldn't have said it any better. And we are going to close out with that. Thanks a lot, Matt. That was, uh, that was excellent. That even fired me up. And uh, just perspective, you know, is certainly something that we neglect. And uh, yeah, thank you for that message, Matt. That was awesome. Everyone, thanks again. Until next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.